Welcome to the GovX Show, a podcast series dedicated to public sector transformation as we count down to the GovX Digital Conference, the UK's largest government transformation event in November. I'm James Smith and I am the content director here at GovX Digital and today we're catching up with one of our speakers at the conference, Miranda Sharp. Miranda sits on the Smart London board and has held a number of roles, which I suppose a common thread would be that there's always been a very strong focus on maximizing the value of data at both the city and national level. So we're fortunate to have Miranda joining us for our conference session on open government alongside the Chief Data Officer of the State of New Jersey in the US and the Director General of Open Government of Buenos Aires in Argentina. Some of the focus for the session is going to be on the role of uh, private data and uh, how it creates public value, as well as the implications uh, for the public sector of uh, an emerging data economy. But let's crack on with getting to know Miranda a little bit better. So welcome to the show, Miranda. Thank you very much, James. It's lovely to be here. It's great to have you. So uh, I thought first off we could start by asking you to tell our listeners a bit more about yourself and your current role at the Smart London Board, as well as some of your interests away from work. Oh, well, thank you very much. So yes, I am I'm delighted to be part of the Mayor's Smart London Board, which works with our, the Chief Digital Officer in London, Theo Blackwell. Um, and it's a, it's a bunch of different people with different perspectives who are looking to improve the experience of London for the entrepreneurs who provide services there, uh, the, and the businesses who work within London, to the people who live, work and visit in London. And we have a particular emphasis um, on data and new technology. Uh, I also work with something at the University of Cambridge called the National Digital Twin Programme, where we're looking to bring together data for the public good at a national, local, and maybe even international level. Um, and finally, I work with the Centre for Cities Think Tank, uh, which is looking at the performance of uh, different cities across the UK uh, with a view to see what we can do to improve productivity um, at a national level. Oh, and then away from work, um, I've always been uh, a, a bit of a sports uh, person, really. So I, I went what felt like a terribly sensible journey at the time, um, originally from being a swimmer to a water polo player to becoming a rugby player. Um, I'm no longer able to get low enough or run fast enough to play rugby. So now I take my frustrations out on inevitably smaller people on the hockey, on the hockey pitch. <laughs> Uh, I feel that uh, there's an interesting segment on, on examining your, your hockey career, because we spoke about this before we press record on the episode, but let, let's see if we, we get time for that at the, at the end of the show. But um, I suppose looking at uh, your, your professional career, I mean, what came first, the, the emphasis on data or the, the interest in working uh, to, to, in the public sector? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, well, I have a science degree, um, and so... Data has always been quite important to me, um, but, I, uh, 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 but I don't... Just for the record, but, I'm a historian, and data was pretty important to us art graduates too. I can already see that there's a sort of science, arts divide, sort of narrative sort of emerging into this, so I just had to put it out there, but... Uh, um, uh, and um, so um, I don't quite know where to go with my apology from that. Um, I have learned recently that history is the most data-driven of the art subjects. Um, 
Uh, so we may, may, may or may not choose to agree on that. But I spent a lot of my university career um, processing data. Um, and so I, I'm quite interested in how, how data tells the story of how it was collected. Um, and you know, the frailties in data, uh, which only become obvious, which you use it for a purpose for which it wasn't originally coll collected, are interesting in and of themselves. So I've, I've been sort of interested in, in that uh, forever, let us assume. Um, and I suppose very early on, my first roles as I was emerging um, from education uh, were entirely in the private sector. Um, and um, you know, there's a lot to learn in the world of work when you're new to it. You know. One of which, you know, you may well be talking about with other contributors, you know, the people who I think are really missing out um, in these sort of weird times are people who are, who are not learning those weird lessons in the world of work, who aren't learning how to communicate with people who are very different ages or very different backgrounds in an office or a workplace environment. Um, and so as I was learning that um, in a purely private sector environment, I thought this is all very interesting, um, but you know, the goal here is, is, is to make money. And while that is a laudable and necessary ambition, um, you might be doing it at the expense of somebody else. And um, uh, my, I, I'm, I'm just a little bit perhaps too idealistic uh, to believe that can be the only reason that we're on the earth. Um, and so I, I started leaning more and more towards the public sector uh, and public service. And I suppose I also held the rather lofty ambition that surely there is somebody in government or there is some magical place in government where they are able to take the entirely holistic view, look at all the available data and make the best possible decision uh, to join this up so that we can um, live our best lives. Uh, and so maybe in the middle of that maelstrom of idealism is where I have found myself. Have, have, you, have you found, uh, if not that, that fabled place, have you, have you found people that you uh, think are are on their way to that, that, that same location, that, that mythical nirvana of, of using data across, across the public sector to create value? Um, I, I, I have a good friend um, who works in government who says that he's, he, every time he goes to a meeting, he comes away with the, uh, with the, with the, always with the answer, the answer is more joined up government. You know, the answer is never anything else. Um, and I think now um, I'm, I am prepared to believe that no such magical room exists um, where everybody has all the data they need at exactly the right set of time series um, and with all the right permissions to share it. I, I know that room cannot possibly exist. And actually, um, and forgive the tangent, um, the thing that worries me most of all is when I look at these fabled smart cities dashboards, yeah. people have these sort of blinking lights and um, you know, figures and, and streams of real-time data. What worries me about that is that people think the answer is real-time data rather than appropriately investigated time series data. So um, you know, it, it, it may be interesting to know what the full train how full the train carriages are at this precise moment. What is much more interesting and very important that we research is what causes train carriages to be full? So are they always full on a Tuesday? Um, are, you know, why do we send empty double-decker buses down Regent Streets in the middle of the day? You know, why is that the best use of resources? Um, you know, what are, are they sometimes full or are they never full? So should what changes might we be making? Um, so setting aside the um, real-time uh, versus not real-time data. Um, do I still believe in this nirvana? 
Um, I think it is a laudable aspiration, and I think it is one to which many people, many people hold dear. Um, but I think we're, we're not going to get there in one bound. Um, and I, um, I am hopeful that enough people are minded to join up bits of data uh, to make better decisions um, than there have been before. And the technology now exists to support them. I think, I think sort of that, 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 that magic room which we haven't found, I mean, it, it seems predicated on the idea of situational awareness, which obviously is one way of looking at data and, uh, and the importance of, of real-time data if you're managing a particular situation, particularly a sort of public safety sort of related issue perhaps. But, um, but obviously, as you said, there is a, a deliberative uh, and sort of interpretive aspect to processing data which is, is not all about you know, how, how recent is the last piece of information to flash across the screen, but, but rather have we had the time to sort of dig into and understand correlations with other data sets and sort of other, other things going on in the environment? Mm, yeah. So uh, moving on then, uh, I suppose looking back at your career, what advice would you would give uh, a younger version of yourself when it comes to the, the, the steps, if not the missteps, that you, you've made? Um, I, I say to this, I defer to Douglas Adams, you know, don't panic. Um, you don't have to achieve it all at once. You don't have to get all the experience for your last job in your next job. Um, and enjoy every moment. So often when you're climbing a mountain, you realize the best view was 10 minutes ago. Um, it gives the impression that I climb a lot of mountains, but um, you know, take the time to enjoy and learn from every experience, I think is the advice I would like to give everybody. Um, and I wish I had been sage enough to take it. Um, uh, you know, so you may very well hate um, some aspects of your current role um, and you've got the opportunity to change it and you should be working to change it, but don't focus on the thing that would, can eat you from the inside. Think about the thing that gets you out of bed and the, the days that you enjoy and and um, do all you can to enjoy them. Uh, I think is my is I maybe much my attitude to life, but um I and I think you know I, I was I was always trying to grab the next opportunity and, and sometimes forgot uh, that to to really really reflect and insist that, that I enjoy that the bits I enjoyed came with me. I wish I'd uh, discovered the concept of mindfulness uh, about 20 years earlier than I did, because certainly the, the younger, more striving to, to get ahead version of myself uh, would probably have benefited uh, deeply from that. How do you think the younger version of yourself would have asked, would have taken that advice? I think uh, I'd have said it's, it's not about, uh, I don't know really, um, Bearing in mind that I spent lots of my career overseas, um, I think I would have made more time for exploring the, the, the places that I was fortunate enough to live in whilst I was living overseas, rather than spending so much, quite so much time in the office and progressing the career, which obviously had got me overseas, which obviously was a, a worthwhile endeavor in and of itself. But nonetheless, uh, when you're you know, given the opportunity to, to spend a lot of time in interesting places, then the more time you spend exploring them, probably the better. So I think that that's possibly a different approach I'd have taken. How about you? 
Um, well, that's sort of the, you know, oh gosh, I, it's, the, it's the five capitals model. You know, work out, you know, it, it, you can't measure success of a career on one dimension. Think about the other dimensions of a career that, that you can measure it on. I think that would have been a really good lesson. I, I think, am I, how would I have taken that advice? That's all right for you. Um, you know, you, you know, you do have a stable job. You, you, you know, you're, you're happy with your level of income. Um, I don't know I'm going to get there. So maybe it's a confidence play. Mm. Or, or, or naivety. I probably had the naivety to, to, uh, to imagine that uh, it was going to be okay regardless. Um, but anyway, can't go backwards, uh, don't need to, uh, forwards. So um, obviously this year has been uh, an interesting year. Um, have you been sort of keeping, keeping well through the, the stresses and strains of, uh, of, of, of you know, post-COVID life? It's been, it's, been a, it's been a really interesting year for us. Um, as, as a family, you know, I, I think we, I've been lucky that I've done it as a family. Um, I've been, I'm extremely fortunate. I look out on my wonderful vegetable patch and the new flower bed that my husband dug me for Christmas, which was the most delightful gift I've ever had. Um, and um, so I was, I, uh, I was made redundant um, and it was predictable. At, it's sort of in the middle of the, the COVID um, thing. It wasn't a COVID decision. Um, which meant that I've had the time to spend time mm. in my garden, um, to do my exercise outside, um, and, and, and to spend the time with my family that are full-time role, um, commuting for a couple of hours a day, um, you know, didn't, didn't give me access to. So, um, yes, maybe I've finally taken that advice uh, and smelled the flowers on the way up the hill. As I said before, um, I'm very lucky, uh, but and the people I'm worried about are the people who who aren't blessed with a study, um, with um, enough social capital in the environments in which they work that I can still ring people and they'll talk to me over Zoom. Um, I've been working with a recent graduate on, on another project, and he said normally um, I would position myself in the office within the eye line of the person I had to get to talk to that day. And when they went and made themselves a coffee, I was straight in their wake and I got them and I got the advice I needed there and then. And, and that person doesn't have that access in this sort of really weird teams universe where suddenly it's acceptable to be in meetings, you know, nine till six uh, with no breaks at all. Um, and and you know, you've lost all the serendipity in, in the office um, and it's, the people who don't have that on which to draw um, that, I, that I fear for. Um, uh, and it's, but, uh, and then it's been, and that bit is tough, but the, the lessons I've drawn and, and the, the happiness I'm taking out of it is um, that uh, we've, uh, we've learned how to, um, we've learned what's important to us. And, and for me, I've, I've really enjoyed my family time at home, though I am delighted that they're, that they're going back to school. Um, and I can I can have a proper thinking piece. I, I do think that when I look back at my career, I mean, I, I learned through sort of obviously physical contact and, and sort of mentoring inside the office. Uh, and you know, I'm not entirely sure how I would have uh, developed, you know, the skills and the I suppose the 
the, the understanding of, of how to to work with people uh, to achieve sort of shared outcomes, um, which which came with you know learning by doing, and obviously when people are sat in their you know on on their own in Zoom uh, or alone on their laptop, I struggle to see how they're going to sort of build up that same level of, of learning understanding. So I think that that's a real challenge. So us mid-career professionals. Um, very happy to sort of avoid long commutes and sort of you know as you say we have the network which we can tap into uh, very easily but it's a very different story for, for for many people in the workplace well let's start with what's in the news um you know we've got relatively few people back in whitehall um and and why would you and i've got time i've got a lot more time a lot more money because i'm no longer spending quite a long not quite so long commuting in uh, but then if I'm running a Whitehall department, why am I paying London wages? People don't want to come here. Um, and so we see that tension played out. Um, and at the same time as we spoke about before, you know, the, the people who, who need serendipity. And, you know, I, I, when we, we spoke, I've been on a conference call where people have talked about the outsource, uh, the sort of the home basing of call centres. There's a lot of evidence that people are more productive at home um, in, a, in, a, in a role like that, but less happy. Um, and so I think we, we, will, we will be forced to ask ourselves questions uh, about the role of the office space uh, and with the role, the cost and the function of, of office space. So um, I can imagine um, from my perspective that, um, and, and I've always been somebody that's barely been in the office, that you know, there is a day a week when we, we go into the office and we do that purely or mostly um, for the purpose of catching up with each other and serendipitous encounters. But then that's quite difficult to arrange in a whole day. So how do you do it? Um, and you no, know, clearly there, well, I say clearly, so there will be some, there will be some things that people need to be um, around each other for. Um, and it's, it, you know, we might be able to continue a relationship over, over Zoom, but relationships are harder to start. Um, over Zoom and certainly you know getting teams to form is something that's very difficult over Zoom because you, you're so reliant upon those sort of one-on-one -on -one connections. Um, so um, I think the the working pattern will be more engineered and more considered and that might be a good thing um, uh, but it, it will it will change our relationship. I My husband talks a lot about how it might change our relationship with our communities so instead of people that we all travel to the to the to work on the tube with, um, you know, they might be the people that we share the co-working space um, in the library or the pub with. Um, and what will that do about for the cross-fertilization of ideas? I I I don't know. Um, and certainly the research on um, on on cities and towns is that they are, are the the, is that you know, London in particular suffers um, as a result of previously being a sort of an office worker serving economy you know, and, and how does it then re-emerge um, and um, you know, there, there's, a, uh, there's an, an excellent series of articles about the benefits of agglomeration. Um, Tim Harford in his excellent book 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, um, his 11 minute podcast on lifts um, says that um, mass horizontal transport and the, the concentration of people um, leads to an, an enormous jump in productivity and idea generation. And how do we, the, the challenge is how do we replicate that when people no longer 
want to be so physical, physically proximal for so long? I think that's quite, there's quite a big answer there, which is, which is highly up being, I don't really know, but then I don't think any of us do. I think that it's important to remember we're only six months into this sort of epochal transition to sort of a very different way of working and that a lot of the patterns will emerge and also the tools that will support those patterns you know, are still under development or haven't been developed yet. So it's, uh, you know, it's very much a question of watch this space really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, at the conference, you're going to be joining us to examine, I suppose, what a, uh, a data economy looks like and sort of what role government can play in that. Uh, why does that matter? Um, so, public sector data uh, is a big asset. I think I'm uncontentious in saying that. Um, but, uh, in fact, data is a big asset to any enterprise. Uh, and you know, I think one of the things certainly we've seen over the sort of the my career is you know, the the border between public and private sector is increasingly porous. Um, and you know, what we might regard as uh, public sector data uh, may well be in the hands of a private contractor. So it, it, when we talk about public sector data, we're not just talking about public sector data. Um, and you know, people are familiar with the idea that data is an asset to people like Google and Facebook because they recognize that their data means that they get a service for free. Um, and equally, people are familiar with the idea that data gives us transparency and that is a universal good. So things like the expenses, Clay, expenses services and, and, and transparency in government are enabled uh, through the publication and sharing of data. Um, and so that's 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 an asset that means that we're living better lives and and um, and being more productive. But anybody who works with data will tell you they spend eighty percent of the time looking for it, organising it, finding it in the right format, making sure they've got the latest version, um, fixing the finding the password that they've forgotten and written down somewhere else, um, and then twenty percent of it, you know, using it to make make a decision. And and so the argument is for. Um, is for good data, but sadly the technology is um, the technology and the business models and the attitudes towards it are are, are maturing at all very different rates. Um, and so we we've got you know we can imagine walking down an instrumented high street, and we might imagine that there's one all-seeing eye somewhere that knows exactly um, what I searched for on my phone as I passed that beacon. Um, what, what my facial expression was as I passed that camera um, uh, and therefore infer exactly what I'm going to drink in the juice bar that I pop into when I next go past it. Uh, and this goes back to this, you know, this, this mythical room where all the data has suddenly come together in a sensible format. You know, it, isn't, it doesn't exist, even if the multiple entities that had access to all those different bits of data could agree data could agree data sharing agreements and you know they were they were the right side of GDPR regulations. You know it, it's it's a, it's quite a sort of a, a crisscrossed world, um, the data economy. But one area that is certainly not mature at the moment is the where we regard data as an asset. Um, and there's been previously there's been really well made arguments for open data. I referred to them a moment ago, transparency and the like. Um, and in fact, you know, certainly in London, one of the arguments is that by TfL agreeing that it is not an app designer, um, it gave away all its data 
so that we no longer queue at bus stops. So suddenly we all know uh, when the next bus is coming and so we, we no longer queue. And that's, that's a good thing for productivity, um, it makes people feel safer, um, and, it, and in fact probably increases bus utilisation. And you know, what city isn't better for bus utilisation? Um, but um, the, the valuation of that data asset is wrong. Um, and so the, the favourite example I like to, like to quote is that um, people like people who use CityMapper, and I am definitely one amongst them, um, and they took TFL's data, um, and and suddenly they are now the owner and the best the people who best understand um, where people want to go and where they want to go, but current the public transport system doesn't meet their demand. So suddenly, private enterprises which took open data have an asset which they, they are at liberty to sell back to the likes of TFL. Now that doesn't feel right to me. You know, we should, uh, the, the, um, the people who are given an asset, the data asset, should have, they should have entered into an agreement. Um, the people who gave them the asset should also have entered into an agreement, whereby some, some of that value returns to them so that they are better able to discharge their function. Um, and. Um, and I use the word carefully value rather than money in that instance, uh, because we're just not, we're not in a position to value our data and our permissions. We just don't have the vocabulary and the models as of yet. So think about how you, when you sign up for free Wi-Fi, you would happily give away your firstborn. You know, just, you know, click, click, whiz, whiz, yes, what you like. Um, I'll have the Wi-Fi, thank you. You know, we, we haven't, as a society and as a bunch of people, engaged with the value of our data um, partly and there's, there's we have sort of conflicting opinions on that you know so um so the, all the evidence is that people are delighted to give their data uh, to for example one part of government but entirely resistant to giving it to the, to the tax office and um, because we believe that there's this magical room where it all comes together and if people were honest about um, what they thought what the data was going to be used for and only what and and were also believable um, then we might start to have a m more mature discussion. But at the moment, what we're lacking is that mature discussion. It strikes me that the hardest thing to get right is, is always around governance. But if we agree that, then it really unlocks the value of data. So I mean, how do you think that, I suppose, that the theory and practice of data governance has, has been evolving here in the UK? Well, I think the answer is evolving. Um, and you know, and you design a system that works entirely for the situation, uh, as you as you either are, are in it or imagine it. Um, so, for example, um, and I, I work quite a lot in infrastructure, where we have regulators in the UK which regulate for lowest consumer price. And who can say that that's not a laudable aim? It's measurable, and and you know, everybody. We you know, at the time, um, the perception was that. There were a bunch of inefficient infrastructure companies who weren't prioritizing the needs of their, their consumer. But now, for example, in water, we're in a quite a different world where actually we need to have a sensible discussion. Are you prepared? How much more are you prepared to pay for access to sustainable water? Um, and and how, much, how much of the power budget of the UK are we willing to spend on, on making, on giving us unlimited supplies of fresh water? And we're getting, into, we now have, the data now exists to have those nuanced debates, but the regulators don't exist to support it because the regulator are only measured on the price that the consumer pays. So I think, uh... 
Well, on, on the panel, obviously, you're going to be alongside uh, sort of Chief Data Officer from New Jersey and uh, the Director General for Open Government in Buenos Aires, all, all very exotic. I mean, what are some of the things that you're, you're looking to, to learn from their experience or questions you might have for them? I'm always fascinated to be on an international panel because um, you imagine that these sort of situations and these challenges are common and it's only when you sit and listen to these guys for a few minutes you realise quite how quite how, how, how different it is. So I, I, um, I'm always very keen to understand the, the patchwork of accountabilities um, that different public sectors have. I mean, the same is true in the UK as well as, as it is globally. So you know, do you have responsibility for both health and social care? Can you use the pricing of transport uh, to affect how people engage with active travel? And because, um, uh, so for example, a, a, a dear, dear colleague said, you know, I only have responsible for pro responsibility for primary school education, and I know that I, if I invest appropriately in primary school education, I reduce um, the scale of the prison budget. The problem is, I don't have the prison budget, and therefore my most, then I, therefore I, you know, however, however sensible I know it is, I can't make the case to invest in the way I want to as a human being. Mm. Um, and, and I think you learn a lot about your situation if you if you see how uh, these people have talent challenge uh, come to terms with um, a, a, a similar challenge but with with different constraints upon them and you understand the constraints you're working under better uh, and therefore are in a better position to tackle them so certainly I have heard um, the Americans speak uh, uh, and um, one of the things it was I think it may it, it was certainly the East Coast uh, and certainly she sat in a room of smart city experts and she said what you must all stop doing is giving away your data um, and it was a very very powerful moment for me when I heard that in Barcelona a few years ago so um, obviously one of the design principles of, of the conference is that we are trying to sort of really sort of have an even balance between sort of the UK experience and obviously international perspectives. So hopefully uh, there's plenty of scope for you to, to sort of, you know, have insights into what they're doing, uh, not just in Argentina and the US, but obviously uh, be a part of the sessions with other speakers as well. Um, one of the things we're doing this year for the first time, we're, we're putting together our, our first conference reading list. So this is uh, an attempt to give ourselves some sort of so highfalutin, highbrow credentials. Uh, so do you have any books or articles that you've read recently that you'd recommend uh, professionally to the audience that we can add to that list? So I'm an unashamed data geek on this subject and, um, and, and not a very good reader. Um, so uh, I, my, my, I, I, cannot, I can recommend some books, uh, but also some podcasts and some videos you can watch which make it easier to consume for people like me. Um, so certainly Hannah Fry's Hello World um, about algorithmic transparency, uh, which are also brilliantly portrayed in visual format in her Royal Institution Christmas Lectures, um, which you should watch with your children, uh, because it's also um, about how to stay safe online. Uh, so it's, uh, it's excellent. Um, uh, and also Tim Harford's um, Cautionary Tales podcasts. Um, certainly the one I listened to in the, felt like the middle of lockdown um, about the suicide epidemic uh, which followed the Fukushima um, incident mm -hmm. in Japan, uh, which was a lesson in human resilience. 
uh, made me quite miserable actually for a while. Um, so there was a, um, following the, the terrible disaster uh, in Fukushima, um, it was only after three or four years that they saw a rise in suicide. Um, and that's at the point at which people just got fed up with coping with so many constraints and so many difficult situations. Um, and it's a lesson in, in how we need to track data for a long time and understand the stories behind people um, in order to get better outcomes. Um, I'm in the middle of the, um, the book, The Invisible Woman, uh, which is about um, uh, the, the un unseen impact of public policy, or the bit I'm in, the unseen impact of public policy made on seemingly gender neutral data, um, uh, where certainly overall the population has benefited um, from a decision, but it seems that uh, men are a much easier audience segment to serve and therefore women are underserved. Um, and uh, it's a salutary read for anybody who is working in public service. Um, uh, snow clearing in Sweden is the one that's I think easiest for me to translate. Uh, so uh, entirely appropriately, um, originally uh, the, the authorities in Sweden um, cleared the major roads, the minor roads and then the footpaths. Um, probably because that was the easiest way to get the flipping snow plows about. Um, and that meant that people could get to work um, and economic value could continue. Um, only when they looked at the data did they discover that most accidents actually happened on the footpaths um, and, and that was disproportionately women. Um, and of course, when, when women drop out um, of activity, um, not only is, is their economic um, activity affected, but normally a disproportionate amount of other people. So the children can't get to school and, and the, the elderly aren't cared for to the same extent. And so after um, the, the people in Sweden looked at this, they now clear the, snow, the footpaths first. Uh, and although some, some, some workers can't get to work uh, quite so quickly, uh, the overall burden on the public sector is less. That's a fitting place to end the episode. So Miranda, thanks ever so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you, learning a little bit more about uh, your personal interests, your professional experience, and obviously your, your reading interests. Um, and obviously, I'm certainly got a very good feeling for our panel discussion on open government at the conference, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, thank you very much. And if anybody's listening and is, has got any examples that they want me to include or think I should be included, should be including, um, then uh, please get in touch. Uh, um, I'm, I'm keen. I haven't written my uh, presentation yet. If anybody's got any brilliant ideas, I'm very keen to include them. Thanks very much. We'll make sure that we ask the audience to, to submit their, their queries, questions and suggestions in the show notes. Uh, so now's a great time for a gentle plug. So if you'd obviously like to listen to Miranda at the conference along with her fellow panellists, then their session starts at uh, 3 p.m. on the 18th November with a series of presentations with panel discussions starting at 4 p.m. All the details will be included in the show notes. So this has been The GovX Show. I've been James Smith and you've been great. Until next time, it's cheerio from me and cheerio from Miranda. Thank you. Thank you.